Our study leader Dave Wurtson continues our discussion of the coming of God's kingdom at an unusual place, a lowly peasant riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Why such strange transportation? Why two donkeys? Turn to Zechariah in your Old Testament and let's discover some answers together. Look at Zechariah chapter 9. It says in verse 8, But I will defend my house against marauding forces. Never again will an oppressor overrun my people. For now I keep watching. Now look at verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king. Why should they celebrate? See your king come to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So we have two animals involved. There's a donkey and the donkey's colt. Now, as we turn over to Luke, turn to Matthew. Let's use Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, beginning of the chapter. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey there, and with her colt by her. Now, did Jesus need two animals to ride on? Was it going to be kind of like riding Roman style like we used to do when we were kids, taking a team of horses, put one leg on one back and one leg on the other and pray that the horses stay close enough together to not split your body in half? No. What did Zechariah predict? That the Messiah would come riding on a donkey and the donkey would have its colt. It's right there. Now how is the prophecy fulfilled? You think God isn't concerned about details? You think God isn't concerned about little, minute, historical realities? It tells us right here. They untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Evidently, the owner of those animals knew Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Because 70 had already gone out from the Lord just before this event, proclaiming all over Israel, the king is at hand. Repent, the kingdom is here. The king has come. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophets. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them in a very large crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, deliverance has come. Bring salvation, what Hosanna means. It means cause salvation, bring salvation. Hosanna, bring salvation, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, bring salvation. He's the highest one. Now, incredibly, and I want you to stick with me. We're going to do some math. How many of you like math? The second coming of the Messiah, when he comes in all of his glory, is not nailed down. The exact timing. Whenever someone says, you need to buy this book, because you can guarantee that during the Feast of Rosh Hashanah, the Messiah will come. Don't buy that book. In fact, a guy that printed a book like that sold millions of them and probably made millions. It's a ripoff. It will every time because the scripture doesn't tell us. Jesus himself said, not even the Son of Man knows about the coming of the King the second time. So anyone that says, I know the time, or if anyone tells you this is going to be it, Watch out. They're deceiving you. But you know, that wasn't so with the first coming of Christ. In fact, the Lord God of heaven nailed down the first coming of Christ precisely. 
And we're going to see how precise it was. Turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. And the book of Daniel presents some of the strongest prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. In Daniel 2, it talks about a stone that's cut out without hands that comes and crushes and crushes the world empires. Daniel chapter 7 talks about the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven and destroys all the world empires. But Daniel chapter 9 tells us another picture. It talks to us about anointed one, an anointed one that, that comes and is rejected. It talks to us about a coming Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. It tells us that it talks about a Messiah that's going to be cut off. And in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 and following, it tells us exactly when this Messiah who was going to be cut off would come. Look what it says. Let's begin with verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed. In other words, 70 periods of seven are decreed for your people, for Daniel's people, the people of Israel, and for the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. And that's where God has chosen to write all of world history. The story of planet Earth, from a physical, earthly standpoint, is written about Daniel's people, the people of Israel, and Daniel's holy city, the city of Jerusalem. It says 77 is going to tie all that together. Now look what it says. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. Now all of those things deal with the big problem that we have in this audience this morning. And that is the problem of my sin and your sin. You see, what we need in order to have the real kingdom of heaven come, we need to have a Messiah come that's going to take away transgression. He's going to atone for sin. And Daniel breaks this up into two groups of three. He tells us, first of all, the Messiah is going to come and is going to end sin, is going to atone for it, and is going to atone for wickedness. Then it says he's also going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, he's going to put his stamp of completion, his seal of it is finished, upon all the prophecies that are written. He's going to bring to a conclusion all the prophecies of the Bible. And notice what else it says. And to anoint the most holy place. The most holy place was the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem. And that temple was desecrated, especially by, by Antiochus Epiphanes, and will again be desecrated by the final Antichrist, the final expression of this Antichrist, Anti-Jesus, Anti-Messiah spirit that's on planet Earth. And so it says that in 70 periods of seven, when all those 70 periods are completed, everything's going to be tied up. The story's going to be complete. History will have accomplished its purpose. Now the text goes on to break it down into a group of 69 and then one period of seven to complete the 70. But let's look at the 69. It says this. No one understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, that's the Messiah that we're talking about, until the anointed one, the ruler comes, there will be 77s and 62 sevens. And those of you that liked math, 7 sevens plus 62 sevens, 69 sevens. Okay? 69 sevens. Now, let's start to put some of this together. Let's do our detective work and look at Daniel's 69 weeks. First of all, it says that this period is going to begin with a decree 
to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. And this is very important. The words that are used to rebuild and to restore Jerusalem are to restore its fortifications. Not just to go and build a little bit of the city, not to go and rebuild the temple, but it specifically says that this decree will be a decree to go and restore the city of Jerusalem with its fortifications. Now there are several different decrees that we could choose. We could choose a decree that was given by Cyrus in about 538, where in, when Cyrus said, Zerubbabel, you can go back to the city of Jerusalem. But that's not a decree that said they could rebuild the cities. There's another decree by, by Darius that just reaffirmed the first decree of Cyrus. They were allowed to return to the city of Jerusalem. It didn't say anything at all about building its fortifications. In fact, they shut the city down, the rebuilding of the city, because they said they were rebuilding the fortifications. Then there's another command by Artaxerxes, but in 444 B.C., probably in March or April of 444 B.C., there was a command that was given to a man named Nehemiah. And Artaxerxes, the Persian king, said, Nehemiah, you can go back and you can do two things. You can rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but you can rebuild the walls and its fortification. And that's the decree that fulfills what Daniel 9 is speaking about. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem with its fortifications. So we've got a beginning date. The beginning date is the decree of Artaxerxes, which was in March or April of 444 B.C. Now we've got to figure out what the what this 69 sevens are. Well, just to fill you in, the beginning of Daniel 9 talks about the conclusion of a 70-year period. A period of sevens that Jeremiah the prophet had spoken about. And, Daniel's, and Jeremiah said that there would be 10 period of sevens, which would equal 70 years, in which the people of Israel would be captive in Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah was told by God, before the people went into exile in Babylon, God said, Jeremiah, buy some land. And he did it, because the people are going to come back after 70 years. Now, we can do some very interesting things. Jeremiah's prophecy concerning the 70 years of captivity begins in 605 B.C., which is when Daniel was taken into captivity. The people were allowed to return in 539, 538. And you say, well, Dave, that doesn't equal 70 solar years of 365 point so-so period. It's not exactly 365 uh, days in a year. It's a percentage point. Okay. You say, why is that? Because in the Old Testament, if you can study this carefully, in the Old Testament, they didn't use a solar calendar. They used a 360-day calendar. Now, you can figure that easily from the book of Revelation. It says that there's three and a half years equals 1,280 days, which means that their years are 360-day years, not our solar years of 365. There's also evidence, not just from the Bible, but there's evidence throughout Egypt, throughout Babylon, throughout many of the ancient world countries, that a normal procedure was to use a 360-day year calendar. So God didn't use some kind of a weirdo, mysterious kind of a calendar. He probably used the calendar that was used pretty prolifically in the ancient Near East. 
But I do know that Jeremiah's prophecy of 70 years was based upon a 360-day year, and it comes out exactly from 605 to 539, 538, is exactly 70 years with a 360-day year, to the minute. Now Daniel just got through praising God that the conclusion of the captivity was over, and now God talks to him about another period of 69 sevenths. Now we would conclude that because the beginning of the chapter used a 360-day year, that we would expect God to continue to use that so he didn't pull any kind of a fast one on Jeremiah. So you say, day wasn't important. Well, we've got 69 times 7 equals 483 years. Prophetic years equal 360 years. You do your math, 483 times 360 equals 173,880 days. Get it all right. 173,880 day years. Now, if you divide that to get our solar years, you end up with a period that Daniel's talking about of 476 years. Now, in order to work this all out, you've got to divide 476, which is the number of years, solar years, that this 69 sevens is going to take. You multiply 476 times 365 days, 5 hours, 48 minutes, 45.975 seconds, to get it exact, and you end up with 173,855 days, 6 hours, 52 minutes, and 44 seconds. Now, where does that end up? When you go from March or April, 444 B.C., and you add this amount of days, you come out with our time reckoning to March 30th, A.D. 33. Now, Harold Toner, not using this statistic, but using other statistics based upon when the census of Quirinius took place, when Tiberius was enthroned, and several other independent reckonings, comes out that the best date for the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem, which Palm Sunday is meant to celebrate, is March 30th, or Nisan 10, of 33 A.D. Listen, college students and high school students and moms and dads and some of you that you say, oh, Dave, what's the big deal about all that math? Well, you might not have followed me in the math, but I want to share something with you. That gives me tremendous hope, and it causes me to want to sing Hosanna to the Son of David. Because this has already happened. We're here to worship a king, a God in heaven who could reveal that his anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And he could say more than 69 periods of seven, more than 476 years before that anointed one came, this God in heaven could tell his prophet and nail it to the precise second, this is when my king is going to come. Remember when the Jewish leaders said, man, tell the people to shut up. Tell those children to stop singing. They're making too much noise. And Jesus said, if they didn't sing, the rocks would begin to sing. Why? Because that was the moment. It was the prophetic moment when the anointed one had come. But Daniel's prophecy goes on and says this. It says after the 62 sevens, after the 69 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off and he will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city of the sanctuary. That's the Romans that conquered the city of Jerusalem in 7 AD. The end will come like a flood. And so Daniel went on and talked about the cutting off of this Messiah. Talked about his rejection. 
Did the Old Testament talk about the rejection of the Messiah? It said it predicted the exact time of the coming of the Messiah, but it also predicted the cutting off the Messiah. Talk about his rejection. Did the Old Testament talk about the rejection of the Messiah? It said it predicted the exact time of the coming of the Messiah, but it also predicted the cutting off the Messiah. Daniel 9, 26. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 through 9. Now, I want you to understand that in 700 B.C., crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. The passages I'm going to read to you are all from the periods of 700 years or so before Christ was born. Crucifixion was a Persian method of extermination, and then it was developed gruesomely by the Romans. But look what it says in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 9. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Turn to Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10. Going back to the passage of scripture that talked to us about the king that would come. That same passage, Zechariah, talks about a Messiah that would be pierced. Zechariah 12 verse 10. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication, they will look on me, the one that they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And then let's turn to Psalm chapter 22, verses 12 through 18. Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18. This was written more than uh, a thousand years, about, just about a thousand years before Christ came. This is a, a Psalm of David. It says in Psalm 22, verses 12 through 18, Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, opening their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all of my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. The same Old Testament scripture that could predict the exact time of the coming and the offering of the Messiah to Israel also predicted the exact method of his rejection and his extermination. And this marvelous description, really agonizing description, which a medical doctor would tell you is one of the most precise descriptions that you could ever write of what it means to die on a cross. Did you hear the phrase, they pierced my hands and my feet? With minute accuracy, the Old Testament predicted that the Savior, the suffering servant, would die. And it tells us why he would die. Isaiah 53 says that all of our iniquities were laid upon him. But on Palm Sunday, when they were all celebrating the coming of the Messiah, a week later it ended in death. But it didn't end in death, did it? 
Look at the end of Psalm 22, because the same Old Testament scripture that predicted the coming of the Messiah, the rejection of the Messiah, the cutting off of the Messiah, also predicted, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They will seek the Lord and they will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. Nations don't bow down before a dead man that's ruling and reigning. You see, Psalm 22 talks about the crucifixion. Isaiah 53 talks about the crucifixion. But both of these scriptures, along with many other Old Testament scriptures, say that some mystery, this is one of the strangest clues of all. He's cut off, he's crucified, but then we in Isaiah, it says, I will declare his days. I will talk about his offspring. I will talk about the children that he generates. Psalm 22 talks about all the nations of the world coming and worshiping this one that was pierced. How can that be? Because after three days, the Messiah, the suffering servant, rose again from the dead. And that brings to a completion his first coming. The coming that Daniel told us would deal with our sin, would bring about the victory, enable us to be forgiven. When we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to realize the king already came. The king has already been here once. Just as the Old Testament predicted he would come, he has come. He came at exactly the right time. He did exactly the right thing. He did the, the miracles the Old Testament predicted of him. And exactly what the Old Testament said would happen to him, happened to him. He was rejected. He was crucified. He was buried to deal with our sin. But then he rose again. And the choice that we have is you either put all of your hope and you join the crowd and you yell, Jesus, I believe you can save me. Jesus, I believe that you can give me life. I'm going to trust in your kingdom. As I go through this earthly life, I'm not just going to live for 60 or 70 years. I'm going to believe that there really has been a word from above. That when I worship on a Sunday morning, it's not the same thing as going to a flick on Friday night where somebody says, well, the Buddhists might be right, the Hindus might be right. You're going to be recycled. Instead, you're going to come together on Sunday and you're going to say, man, I want to be here because I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Is that important? Oh, you bet your life it's important. Because you are betting your life. Because none of us ever know. None of us ever know how long this physical life can be. We can't just live for the now. And what we've studied this morning, though at times it becomes involved, and our human, human flesh has a hard time paying attention at times. It's hard to follow some of the intricate arguments of the Old Testament prophets. But those prophets have the words of life for me and for you. And when we get down on our knees and we worship and we cry out, Hail King Jesus, thank you for dying for me. Thank you for rising again. Thank you for giving me life. If you really mean that, if you cast yourself totally upon him, the kingdom comes to you. You see, right now, 
the kingdom's not, for the most part, visibly present. For the most part, we don't really get to hear Jesus talk to us where we, where we hear him in our ears and we hear his voice and we get to hug him. That day is coming, but it's not now. Jesus said before Pilate, he said, if my kingdom were of this world, my people would fight for me. But my kingdom's not of this world. It's from above. In Luke, it talked about the fact that there would be a kingdom, there would be a time that's kind of what we might call the, the, the in-between reign. The spiritual in-between reign where Jesus is ruling in the hearts of those who will decide. And some of you I know are crying out to me and say, David, I wish the, the blind eyes could see today. I want the deaf to hear now. So do I. I want there to be healing for everyone right now. Oh, I would long for that. And some of you look into my eyes and say, why, why does God sometimes give us a little glimpse of his kingdom? But he doesn't consistently do it. We still have funerals. We still have death. Why is that? And I want to share with you the reason why. It's because there's still someone here. There's still someone here whose heart has not really decided yet. You see, God loves you enough. He loves you enough to continue to allow the reign of evil, the reign of sin, the reign of death to take place. You know why he does? Because he wants to come to you like he came the first time, humble, gentle, just riding on a donkey. He's going to come in a chariot one day. There will be no choices. By sheer omnipotent force, knees will crash to the floor because when he's revealed in all of his splendor, the choice is gone forever. But God loves you. He's going to do that one day because he's just. But right now, he's waiting, quietly, tenderly waiting. And going out through a group like this, he's saying, I want you to love me. I want you to willingly choose to cry out, Hosanna. I want you to think it through. I want you to read my scripture. I want you to think about who my son is. I want you to hear a message like you've heard this morning that tries to put together all the clues for you. And then Jesus quietly comes to your heart and he says... Will you let me be your Messiah? Will you let me be your King?